The rest of you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. We will be in the Gospel of Luke today. Luke 12. So, and quick thanks to our setup crew. Obviously, we walked into a, another different situation this morning. So, uh, setting up chairs and trying to match size of family to numbers of chairs and all that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, mostly worked okay, but um, uh, it was a lot of uh, last-minute effort. So thank you to all the folks that made that happen. So, very good. So let's turn to Luke 12. We're going to read verses 13 to 21. This is known as the parable of the rich fool. And uh, continuing in our series of misused stories. So please uh, listen carefully as this is God's word. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger, or larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people once again. We've come to your word and we find a familiar passage, but one that makes us uncomfortable. We find a story that exposes our greed and our covetousness and our foolishness, things we'd rather not deal with. What is it that we worship ahead of you instead of you as much as you? What are the things we want that are drawing our hearts away from you? Lord, you know the secrets of our thinking. You know the wants of our hearts. You know the sins of our soul. So this morning, help us to see the riches of the gospel in Luke chapter 12. And so we pray, have mercy on us this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. So what is affluenza? Affluenza is a nifty little word that a clever sociologist created by mixing two different words together. The word affluence means having a great deal of money. Influenza is a highly contagious disease. And when you mash these two words together, you get affluenza, which is a useful word for describing the problems generated by a rich consumer culture that has an endless hunger for more. Affluenza is the disease of greed. 
It's the materialistic mindset that says getting more money and more possessions and more stuff is the ultimate aim of life. And affluenza is the spirit of our age. And to one degree or another, it's infected all of us. Now, it was very interesting. I was looking at this and discovered back in 1997, there was a popular hour-long PBS documentary entitled Affluenza. And it was about consumerism and its harmful effects on the family, the community, and the environment. And there's one scene in this documentary where the narrator is visiting the Potomac Mills Mall. At the time, one of the largest shopping centers in the United States. And as the narrator is walking through the mall, he says, Potomac Mills attracts more visitors than any other site in Virginia. This shopping mall is such a popular tourist destination. Airlines offer excursion flights here from distant cities. 70% of Americans visit malls each week, more than attend churches or synagogues. So they made the malls bigger and invented large mega malls. They began to replace the smaller shopping malls that were the backbone of retail sales in this country since the end of World War II. And mega malls are defined as a shopping mall with over 1.5 million square feet of net leasable space. That's a lot of square feet. And these large mega malls became so popular that over 1,200 of them were built in this country. And one business journal advised investors to get in on the mega mall craze before it was too late. Well, that was just over 20 years ago. Not that long for some of us. It was before the age of the internet. It was before the age of Amazon. Mega malls began dying out about 10 years ago. And the first response of the mall owners was to make them fancier and offer lots of other activities to draw shoppers. So theaters were added and restaurants, nice restaurants were added. Some mega malls even have amusement park rides. But none of that could withstand the power of the internet. And in 2017, just three years ago, major investment banks predicted that 25% of all malls will be closing by the end of 2021. Over 200 have already shut down in the United States. And then COVID hit. The pandemic that has slammed the economy is speeding up the demise of department stores. COVID has forced the likes of JCPenney, Macy's, Nordstrom, Dillard's, Lord & Taylor, and Neiman Marcus to shut down, some temporarily, many forever. Business forecasters now predict that 50% of the department stores anchoring America's malls will close by the end of next year. 50%. There are about 1,000 malls still open in the United States. Roughly 60% of those, or 600 of those mega malls, have department stores as anchor tenants. 
and accelerating the demise of them all is the fact that the inline tenants, which is the smaller chain stores you find in between all the big department stores, like uh, Old Navy or The Gap, most of them, I didn't know this, have co-tenancy clauses that allow them to break their lease when an anchor space sits vacant. 20 years ago, business leaders were recommending that we tear down the shopping malls and replace them with mega malls. Sound familiar? In our text this morning, Jesus tells a parable about a man who said, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. We've moved from barns to malls to Amazon, and who knows what's next. But it doesn't appear that we've learned the lesson of this parable very well. So what is this parable trying to tell us? Well, two things, I think, as I wrote the other day, for those of you that get the weekly uh, email, uh, most preachers will tell you the subject is money, and more specifically greed, and they'd be right, because Jesus mentions covetousness, abundance, possessions, and treasure in this text. But that's what counselors call the presenting issue. And sometimes counselors have to dig down to find out what the real problem is what the root cause is. And that's some degree what's going on here in this passage. So the context is simple. Jesus is teaching uh, his disciples, uh, starting at Luke 12, verse 1. It says, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Then in verse 4, he teaches about fear. And then in verse 8, he teaches about acknowledging him before others. So that's the context. Jesus is teaching the disciples in front of a large crowd about hypocrisy, fear, and acknowledging him before others. Now, one of the amazing things about this, I had never seen this before, although I've preached this passage before, is that the crowd gathers. It says thousands of people trampling one another, and Jesus begins to speak to his disciples. Now, there's a number of times when Jesus speaks directly to the crowd, but very often he speaks directly to the disciples, but in such a way that the crowd can hear. And here's what I realized. Jesus is dressing this group of people, and in the crowd there's people who believe, people who don't believe, and people who don't know what they believe. And he not only says some things to them directly, but he says some things to his disciples that he wants them to overhear. So he not only gives the crowd things he wants them to hear, but he gives them things he wants them to overhear. Now, most of the material on giving and stewardship and are the relationship that we have with our possessions um, that Jesus has taught has been to his disciples. He said, this is what I want you to know. This is what I want you to have. But he does it in such a way that he wants the crowd to hear. 
Jesus wants the crowd to hear him talking to his disciples about money. And one of the ways you come to know who Jesus is, you come to know what he's done, is this way, when you see him talking to his disciples about money. You read the Gospels, you discover that Jesus spoke about this a lot. 16 of the 38 parables deal with how to handle money and possessions. And 10% of the verses um, that Jesus spoke, 288 verses in all, deal with the subject of money. The Bible offers about 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. So that's what's going on. Jesus is speaking to this standing room only crowd. Luke's already told us thousands of people are gathered there, craning their necks, cupping their ears. It says trampling one another. You get the image they're trying to push other people out of the way, hoping to catch some pearl of wisdom falling from the lips of this man. And so you have the scene. You got the disciples, you got this crowd, they're all sort of pushing and shoving. Everybody's getting close. And then right in the middle of Jesus' teaching, one man pushes his way all the way to the front. You can picture him, his face is flushed, his voice is anxious, and he blurts out this rude request. And that's the first blank for those that are still doing the outlines, his rude request. Verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Probably, almost certainly, this is a younger sibling. Some older brother who's probably in the crowd, I can imagine him saying this and pointing, you know, teacher, tell my brother, he's pointing him out. The older brother's now inherited the estate from his parents and apparently is not sharing the inheritance with him or maybe with some of the other siblings. And so he comes and says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So it could be a comic scene. It could be a tragic scene. It kind of depends on how you look at it. The man is so worried that nothing else matters, not even social etiquette. He doesn't care about the point that Jesus is making or what Jesus is teaching or even all those people who have gathered to hear it. It seems that all he cares about is himself. That's the way it seems. You know, I preached this passage 18 years ago. And I went back and I looked at that sermon and I made this guy out to be a complete jerk. Now, I'm not so sure. I think he's angry. I think he's hurt. I think he's at his wit's end. He doesn't know what he can do about this situation, so he turns to Jesus. Not a bad place to turn. On the other hand, if you got to ask Jesus one thing, would it really be about the family inheritance? Now, before you cast the first stone at him, let me put you in this situation. Let's say it's your family that's torn apart by disagreements over an inheritance. If we brought Frank Pugh up here this morning, he could share heartbreak stories he's seen in the lives of families fighting over inheritances. Trust me, we would be up here a long time. But let's say Jesus is here. 
Your family's been torn apart by this dispute over an inheritance. Wouldn't you want to ask Jesus to settle that? I mean, surely Jesus could come in there and fix the situation that's torn your family apart. That's what this man is doing. However, the very question shows what the man thought was really important. Jesus is standing in front of you and you're asking to settle a family dispute. The question reveals the man's values are somewhat upside down when it comes to what's really important. I mean, it's Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus, our mediator, Jesus, our savior, is standing there in his presence. And he wants a family dispute over money sorted out. Now we have, you know, the hindsight of a couple thousand years, but it looks kind of insignificant in light of the weight and enormity of who Jesus is. And that's exactly the point Jesus is making to his disciples. And so after the man kind of uh, butts in with this rude request, Jesus surprises him with what sounds like a harsh refusal. A harsh refusal. Verse 14, but he said to a man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Why such a harsh refusal? You know, in some ways, the shocking surprise of the passage is that Jesus refuses to do it. And it's not just a surprise that he refuses, considering, as we already said, Jesus is very concerned about money. He's always talking about it. I mean, that's why the man asked. But what Jesus says, who made me? In other words, it's not what my job is. That's not what I was appointed to do. That's not my mission. That's not my job description. I have a limited amount of time, and that's not what I'm here to do. And he's telling the man, I was not appointed for this kind of division or this kind of judgment. It becomes interesting because at the end of the chapter, he's going to tell him exactly what kind of division and what kind of judgment he is here for. But he says, if you come asking me to divide your inheritance before you ask me to divide your life, if you come asking me for anything before you've given me everything, you don't really understand me. You don't know what I'm appointed to do. You don't understand my mission. And so after this harsh refusal, he gives what sounds like a wise rebuke. And he tells this pretty much to everybody. It says them, verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Literally, this says you do not exist in your possessions. That's what it says. They don't translate it that way because it sounds odd would be accurate to the Greek, but not very accurate to the English. If you want to know more about that, next week's Sunday School is on translations. But Jesus is saying, you don't exist in those things. My job is to tell you what life really is. My job is to show you what your life really consists in. It's not in the abundance of your possessions. You haven't understood what I'm here for. I'm not here to get you 
the things that you think will make your life worth living. I'm here to be your life. And that's the point. And the reason for the refusal is priorities. Now, I think there's an awful lot of us who are asking regularly, and we don't necessarily say it like this, but something to the effect of, Lord, can you get the circumstances of my life in order? And Jesus is saying, I didn't come for that. And you know what? If I did it for you, it probably wouldn't help. It helped for a week, helped for a month, it might help you for a year. But there's more to you than this life. And then he says something that shows he really understands, he really knows what's going on in this guy's family. His family's being torn apart. And the next statement shows that he understands the family's being torn apart. It's being torn apart by greed, by uh, hunger for money, by wanting more, by a materialistic heart. Maybe it's in this man, maybe it's in his brother, I don't know. The point is, he says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Now there's a premise here. There's an assumption when he says, be on guard against all covetousness. The assumption is that covetousness, or more simply greed, is something that's hidden from you. Something that deceives you. Jesus is assuming blindness to be the condition of covetousness. That blindness is intrinsic to the condition. Blindness is part of the condition of covetousness. Greed and materialism, by their very nature, hide themselves from you. And that's why he has to say, watch out, take care, be on guard, look for it. Now, I don't know any place where Jesus says, Take care and be on your guard against adultery. Why not? Is it because adultery isn't as destructive as greed? No, it's pretty destructive. The answer is because adultery isn't nearly as deceptive as greed. I mean, you always know when you're committing adultery, but you almost never know when you've gotten to this equally soul-destroying sin of greed, materialism, and covetousness. Nobody who's greedy feels they're greedy. Nobody who's materialistic feels they're being materialistic. You know, I've been in pastoral ministry a long time. And over the years, people have admitted all kinds of stuff to me. It's why I have white hair. That and teenagers. But you know, nobody's ever come to me and said, you know, I constantly struggle with coveting. But covetousness is more common than we think. In fact, I don't know of a sin more pervasive than covetousness. It's very deceptive. It's very difficult to detect. Secondly, it's a dangerous sin. And it's dangerous, first, because it tempts us to hypocrisy. And remember, that's what Jesus was talking about before he was so rudely interrupted. You know, we say that we set our hearts on things above, Colossians 1 when in fact our desires are set on things below. And we try and hold these opposite things together, and over time we get pretty good at disguising our hearts and pretending to be something or someone we're not. And covetousness is dangerous because it's an enemy to grace. When our hearts are set on what we don't have, but what we really want, it diminishes our joy for what really matters. 
when our hearts are set on something we really want, we, be, we get obsessed about things that are of lesser value and not eternally important, certainly not as much as what the Lord has given us in Christ. And covetousness is important for us to think about. It was important for Jesus to address with his disciples because it's what we call a root sin or a root cause. Covetousness is one of those sins that leads to other sins. And at some point, people get to the place where they believe that what they want is so important, it doesn't matter how they get it. And so the very desire for what they want leads them to do things to get it which involve other sins. Covetousness is a root sin because it leads to other sins. And Jesus illustrates his point with a parable about the rich fool. Verse 16 through 20. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? The man is a farmer. Talks about crops. His hands were once callous from years of working the land, but he's rich now, and he can pay to put calluses on other people's hands. So you can tell by looking at him that his wealth has been hard-earned. His eyes have that certain squint to him from so much time spent out in the sun. His weathered face is a network of wrinkles from years of worrying about his crops. Will the rains come early this year? Will the locusts be back? Will the price of grain be stable? I imagine in earlier years he was the first one up in the morning and the last one to bed at night. His days were spent checking equipment and overseeing the hired hand and plodding through the furrows of his field for a first-hand look at the condition of his crops. His nights were spent figuring profit by the dim light of an oil lamp, thinking of ways to squeeze a few more bushels out of each day. But as the years flew by and his barns filled up, the rich man looked forward to the day when he didn't have to depend on the rain or fight off the locusts or worry about the fluctuating price of grain. And that day came with a bumper crop so big his barns couldn't hold it all. So he sketches the blueprints for one last building project and right beside it he unrolls his plans for retirement. The rich man is the envy of all his neighbors. In their eyes, he's the epitome of hard work and wise planning. But in the eyes of God, he is a fool. He's prepared for every harvest except the most important one, the one that would come that very night. Cloaked in darkness, death comes to him without so much as a whisper of warning. And in this sudden grim reaping, the rich man is taken away. And not one grain of his wealth goes with him. 
All he stored up for himself is left to be dispersed among his heirs. And it will be fought over in the same way that the man in the crowd fought with his brother over the inheritance their father left. All of his plans were made on the basis of the material gifts he received in this present life with no regard for the giver. This is especially inexcusable for a farmer. I couldn't think of any other occupation that's more dependent on the faithfulness of the creator. Yet there's no mention of gratitude. There's no hint of even asking God what he should do. The rich fool became so obsessed with planning for this life, he gave no thought to the next life. And while concerning himself with today, he forgot eternity. While laying plans for the future, he didn't consider his own mortality. While thinking solely of himself, he ignored his neighbor. A self-centered life which doesn't consider the welfare of others is a lost life. And truth be told, when we first hear this story, we're not nearly as harsh as Jesus is. We actually find ourselves rather envious of this man. He's a financially successful man. We see him as savvy and wise. <clears throat> and yet Jesus concludes the story by saying that the man was a fool. And remember that guy who asked Jesus to settle his inheritance? I wonder what he was thinking when he heard the parable. It doesn't really tell us, but I think he just quietly slipped away. I think he chose not to push the point because Jesus at that moment has essentially identified him in front of this whole group of people as a fool. So is there a faithful remedy? Is there a faithful remedy? Verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, I really wanted to come in here this morning and say, this is the only place where God calls somebody a fool. But I looked it up. And Jesus uses the word two other times both times addressing Pharisees. Still, it's pretty rare. And the word fool in the Bible is a significant word. In the Bible, the word fool has a rational aspect. A fool is somebody who's not thinking about spiritual things, somebody who's not thinking about uh, consequences, uh, somebody who's out of touch with reality. There's also a spiritual aspect, because in the Bible, foolishness is not the absence of mental ability. It's the presence of a mental outlook that hates God's definition of reality. What we see here is money made this man a fool. Money spiritually blinded him to God's reality in two ways. You're going to have to stay with me here. We can get a little deep real quick. First of all, money blinds this man to the existence of spiritual reality. And second, money blinds this man to the principle of spiritual reality. Here's what I mean by the existence of spirituality. Look back at verse 18. The text says, I will store up all my grains and my goods. He doesn't just store up some. He stores up all. God says, you're a fool. 
Here's why. Because he stored up his crops as if this world was all there is. As if there wasn't a spiritual reality. As if the material world was it. Actually, there is a spiritual world. And what we have here is pretty important. What God is saying, obviously, uh, first, is that the money you spend on yourself can't go with you. You know, there's an old saying, you can't take it with you, and that's true. But there are some things that never stop. There are some things that do last. The Bible says God's kingdom doesn't stop. It says, Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The word of God doesn't stop. People don't stop. And here Jesus is coming along and saying, you know, if you take your money, if you take your stuff and you put it all in the barns, you put it all in the savings, does that last? Banks fall apart, barns fall apart, everything falls apart in this life. Put your money into God, put your money into God's kingdom, put your money into God's word, put your money into people. That lasts. That's the first thing. Money tends to blind us to the spiritual reality. The second way money blinds us, not just to the existence of a spiritual reality, but to the principle of the spiritual reality. And what do I mean by that? The Bible says over and over again that in the spiritual realm, there's this principle of spiritual growth. And you know what it is? It's the exact opposite of what the world says. The world says, store up. The Bible says, empty yourself. It says it in a lot of different ways. Uh, Jesus says, Matthew 23, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's a paradox of the gospel. It's the opposite of the world. It's upside down. Matthew 16, 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Sounds backwards. It's a paradox. The Apostle Paul picks up the theme, says the most, there's actually a lot of these in the Bible. I'm just going to name a few. 1 Corinthians 1. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So he says worldly standards. This is what the world's looking for. Wise, powerful, noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why? Well, Paul answers that question in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. He says, because we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Or how about 2 Corinthians 12? He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. 
What's the spiritual principle? The Bible is telling us that humility is the hallway to honor. Weakness is the way to strength. Repentance is the journey to joy. Service is the path to power. Giving is the way to wealth. Gospel paradoxes. All of them. And of course the world says that's utterly ridiculous. And Jesus says, but the world is full of fools. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the issue before us this morning is what do we do with this story? What's the right response? And you have to ask yourself at some point, are we ever guilty of having the same attitude the world has? Do we become so engulfed with our gifts from God, health, spouses, children, friends, homes, success, that we enjoy them but neglect to honor the one who supplied them? Success with getting material possessions can bring the temptation to labor for ourselves and our families to such an extent that we neglect our spiritual lives, which bring eternal rewards. Well, you might ask, okay, how do I overcome this? And Jesus says, become rich toward God. Well, what does that mean? I'll tell you. Well, actually, Paul will tell you. Because in 2 Corinthians 8 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The context of that whole passage, 2 Corinthians 8, is giving. And this is Paul's metaphor to explain it. He does this a number of times in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Same book, Paul says, For our sake he, God, made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's it. Christ gave up his entitlements. He came to earth. He was entitled to be protected and he was crushed. He was entitled to have access to God and he was forsaken. He was entitled to glory and he got a cross. He was entitled to these things and he gave them up so we could have them. When you become a Christian, biblically, you become rich. Here's how you know he's changed your standing. He's changed your status. He's given you the protection. He's given you the access. And because what Jesus has done, you're now clothed in his righteousness. You're holy and blameless before God. And that's what it means to be rich. Think about what Christ has done for you. And then thank him for it. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. In our God, once again, we thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We confess there are times when we take your grace for granted. 
when our hearts are weighed down by greed and our minds are burdened by coveting things. We ask for the wrong things, for selfish things, for foolish things. Help us to become a people so in love with you, so captivated by Jesus, so thankful for the grace of the gospel that though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes, that we ourselves would become generous, that we would enjoy whatever you've given us, but we wouldn't be owned by it, that we would enjoy whatever you've given us, but we wouldn't value it more than you, and that we would become generous people because you have been so generous that we would be giving people because you've been so giving. Lord, we want our neighbors to see this. We're so caught up in a culture that's in love with stuff, and we're not uninfected by that either. We all love our stuff. But we want our neighbors to see that we're different, that we care about you more than we care about things, that we care about your kingdom and the gospel more than we care about dollars and cents. Teach us that God and grace and Christ and the gospel are what we need most of all. For we come in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Receive God's blessing. Also from 1 Corinthians. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God bless you. We'll see you next week.